0: Queer Relationships, an IM Clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Psychedelics have a bad rap. The war on drugs stigmatized psychedelics on a cultural level, and many others demonized psychedelics after seeing loved ones form addictions to them. As a therapist who treats addictions often, I know full well how devastating and destructive substance dependency can be. I also know how tragic trauma can be. In this episode, you'll hear from Trevor, one of I Am Clinic's associates who personally changed my life with psychedelic-assisted trauma therapy.
1: The psychedelic work, body-based trauma work, really can orient to essentially getting into what are the experiences that our mind-body has learned and taught itself to never have that feeling again and oftentimes it's like the repeated wounding or the big wounds but then the symptoms that show up like they don't seem to be working like we do refeel, feel we continually feel anxious or feel depressed um, go into patterns of, of avoiding something that actually maybe are more destructive you know destructive than if we could just go back and feel it um, you know, I think that's what brings folks generally towards therapy oftentimes. Whatever the pattern is that, I, that I'm watching unfold in my life isn't working. And the frame that I hold is that those patterns are most often, like, they're there sort of as the scar tissue.
0: How do we shake free of painful memories, debilitating narratives, and unwanted patterns? In today's episode, you'll find out. Take a listen. Tell us your name and a little bit about what you do.
1: My name is Trevor Ekstrom and I am a psychotherapist in Denver doing, I guess, a variety of work, but I mostly maybe what we are here to talk about, um, has to do with the integration of somatic psychotherapy, uh, trauma work and trauma processing and psychedelics, uh, ketamine and cannabis maybe in particular.
0: How did you get involved in it? I don't think I know this story. <laughs> so let's see, how did I get
1: involved in this? Um, we go all the way back uh, to my crazy days as an adolescent. Mm. Um, and actually, I think it really is is relevant to the journey. It's like, you know, as a young person, I did a lot of drugs. I did a fair number, different kinds. Uh, not all of them were great. Um, but I did have experiences with psilocybin and LSD and you know I think probably like many adolescents lots of big big experiences and you know I think what was I think a lot of dark times for me for a set of years those experiences had a certain quality I think that I, I recognize you know as I've talked to many people who are adults or even you know adolescents now um where there was a like a, some sort of learning there, um, you know, a lot of self-reflection, these big experiences. So that was me as a young person, um, you know, opened up my curiosity about my own mind and about human behavior and who we are, like some mm-hmm. big sort of existential questions that I think many of us probably have from time to time. And fast forward a lot of years, <laughs> um, you know, And I really never thought that that would be something that would come back into my life. Like, I really walked a path of doing a lot of healing, not using substances. You know, I'd really seen a lot of the shadow in that in myself. And come grad school and did my training at Naropa University in Boulder. And, you know, that set of time... I think, brought together a few different elements that I now find that it really inform how I, how I view the work of psychotherapy. And I think the pieces there were, well, one, orienting more and more into my own body and embodied experience and sort of finding that as a path of a lot of powerful change for me. Really, seeing how it maybe would inform and could inform the process of psychotherapy and healing and growth, orienting both in graduate school and in the work that I chose as a as a you know as a new clinician in the field was just you know clearly the impact of traumatic events in people's lives, Mm -hmm. both the the big capital T traumas that we think of, um, Mm -hmm. you know, assaults and. Um, well, you know, the, the many categories of such, but also very much the things that we don't see or are invisible that have to do with the emotional patterns in family, um, bigger societal pieces around privilege and oppression, but that these really are impacting all of us, you know and, and and those recipients on a nervous system level. like on a developmental level of what it means to be in a human body in this world. And maybe the last piece that that brings it all together, um was during graduate school the first substance that i put in my body for about 7 years was ayahuasca mm-hmm. and so it's you know for those who aren't familiar it's, i think probably many are i think it is a pretty almost a household word maybe mm-hmm. now um but is a very potent psychedelic you know with origins in the south american jungle that has certainly found its way to to the US Mm -hmm. in a variety of contexts. And I engaged in ceremonial use of that, uh, you know, a number of times. And I think the first time that I found shaking in my own body, like from sort of this very body led, deep place kind of core of me was, was in that. Um, And it really was a coming together of but I think is an innate capacity that the body has to resolve trauma to resolve. Yeah. Where we are holding parts of ourselves that maybe couldn't experience, didn't get to exist where those, where those wounds are. Um, And so yeah, that period of time really informed how I, you know, one way that I view healing and growth.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: that's, yeah,
1: that's a, I'm probably a medium version of that story.
0: (laughs) I like the medium. I want to know what the large version, (laughs) (laughs) all details. Um, You know, something really resonated with me and I've um, just in full disclosure, I have come to you for medicated sessions and that's how we met. And I feel like the big T's and little T's and are really profound because I like to describe as a clinician myself that the little teeth can almost be like an emotional tattoo mm. as opposed to a major wound, you know, like a lacerated arm versus this emotional tattooing that kind of brands you in a certain way. And I think after having lived so long in a closeted environment, hiding myself and afraid of showing myself and afraid of the consequences in a religious context of showing who I was to the world really in a sense kind of branded me as someone who felt disposable or disgusting alone. And to, to, with every poke of that tattoo, there was a whole story underneath that one poke, that little drop of ink held so much content. And to, to watch my body kind of purge the, the sensation of being disposable or the fear or the aloneness is a profound experience, but then to live without it anymore, to feel like that tattoo on my forehead that said, faggot, mm. to feel like the, that, and all of the content that came with it, I'm almost getting teary-eyed here, to feel like it's dissolving. And I can walk proud yeah, in my reality and, and in my own body has been so transformative. So for people who might be interested in, in the process or like what's happening when we're using psychedelic assisted trauma therapy, what's actually happening in the body?
2: Well,
0: in many
1: things, you know, and I, I think there are, there are a number of different things theoretical frameworks and so i'll speak mostly in sort of a, a somewhat general way in the way that i conceptualize the work which is that you, like you spoke to like the uh, the emotional tattooing and the impact of many repeated things over time and that really right is, is certainly like as profound and i think in many cases more profound than what even a single event can do. And I don't, you know, not to compare one versus the other, but just to really speak to both as deeply formative, that, right. The sense of identity that shows up as we repeatedly have some experience, especially at younger ages where we are developing. Um, A body perspective says that we, we, we learn that right on both a neurological level, like our, our identity, neural, neurological correlates and like how we talk to ourselves, core belief structures that, that form, but also that that shows up in in emotion, in how we experience certain emotions, how we push away from other emotions, and essentially how our, our brain and our body learns to protect itself by not re-experiencing certain things. And like this psychedelic work, body-based trauma work, really can orient to essentially getting into what are the experiences that our mind body has learned and taught itself to never have that feeling again. And oftentimes that's like the repeated wounding or the big wounds, but then the symptoms that show up, like they don't seem to be working. Like we do re-feel, we continually like feel anxious or feel depressed um, go into patterns of, of, of avoiding something that actually maybe are more destructive, you know, destructive than if we could just go back and feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that's what brings folks generally towards therapy. Oftentimes, whatever the pattern is that I, that I'm watching unfold in my life isn't working. And the frame that I hold is that those patterns are most often like they're there sort of as the scar tissue, <laughs> they're there as the tattoo that's around the wound that's underneath it
2: mm-hmm.
1: and if they're protective that our, our symptoms are protective that they are wise in a particular way as the way that we formed around something that you know I'd say never should have happened mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. wasn't advantageous that was harmful mm-hmm. um, be that physical emotional all the different types of wounding and abuse that happen mm-hmm. um, and I think it really speaks to that there's not a clear separation between mind and body, that cognition, sensation, emotion are deeply linked. And I think any, you know, any therapist, you know, or therapy out there would say like there, there are links here. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that I think psychedelic work in particular can inform the process of therapy is how fluidly it can let our, our minds and bodies interact Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and move between sensation emotion cognition see very much how clearly linked they can be
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, one of um i tell my clients this all the time especially when we're doing emdr which is a, another type of trauma treatment it comes from, it's a quote from Bessel van der kolk who's a world-renowned psychiatrist i believe he would say um because trauma lives in the body dissociated from language and rational thinking the body's only opportunity or only option then is to keep reliving the trauma. Mm, And I think that's such a profound statement. It's almost, I feel like trauma is the body's way of remembering what hurts. And when we're triggered, we don't get this whoosh of feeling self-protection. We get a whoosh of the trauma itself because it's still in our body. Um, And I think that's really profound. I think the other thing that I really... Use as kind of a compass when I think about my own medicated work is um, The Brain Explained. It's a Netflix series. Have mm. you seen this? Mm-mm. It's fascinating. They have um, one show, it's like a 30 minute little vignette on psychedelics, where they say the neocortex and the brainstem anatomically are not connected or not very well connected until we um, ingest a psychedelic and then they begin communicating with each other and it almost feels like the psychedelic is such an important piece to get the rational thinking talking to the trauma in in a space where the rational thinking is still activated so you can process your rational think or your trauma rationally
1: yeah and actually i think yeah as you say that it points to and maybe i think there there are a couple of schools of thought in you know Psychi- call it the world of psychedelic therapy, and there's a traditional model that is out there that is orients towards high doses, you know, and this is the research that happened in the 50s. It's, it's a lot of what's unfolding now is psilocybin and depression or MDMA, eh, maybe less so with the MDMA map studies. because mm-hmm. um, I think actually those doses are a bit lower, but the traditional was high doses of something, you know, really to get the any sense of that rational mind, really confused offline oh, to really sort of take that you know often you know and i'd say it sometimes could be maybe even aggressively at times offline in order to have these transformative experiences um, hmm. that is not how i orient in this work i, I have knowledge there but it, in, in in the work that i do with clients it is not one, using any of those substances, but also orienting towards an experience that is so big where somebody loses language or has trouble finding language. Mm. And I think it's probably, a, 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 we can spend many minutes on mm-hmm. exactly like why I think it is useful, right, to keep frontal lobe online. And it's actually one of the, the key factors in doing work with somebody is like, can they be in verbal connection with, with me, the therapist? in that we are trying to hold two different places. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, that frontal lobe and like the neocortex and, and our limbic system is to have those communicating. For sure. Know, that that's mm-hmm. one of the foundations of, of trauma psychotherapy is mm-hmm. to create connection between these two places so that one, one like the neocortex isn't just chronically suppressing and overriding, mm-hmm. you know, like our very intellectual selves and, and mm-hmm. sometimes emotionally constricted selves. But at the other end, not just having triggers and emotional experiences completely overwhelm us, um, you know, often into behaviors or actions or experiences that we don't want. Mm-hmm. Um, so that communication piece is really vital. Most often, and I would say really across the board in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, there are challenges to that, but it don't need to Yeah,
0: dissect that. Sure. I think that in my work, I use cannabis in my sessions and... To feel as though I'm visiting emotions and sensations in my body that typically either haunt me, paralyze me, or just flat out piss me off. (laughs) (laughs) But to visit them in a way that I'm not just only experiencing them, but I'm learning about them. Yeah. And that I can put language to them for the first time. And to understand not only the development of those experiences that feel like trauma but then to have this beautiful language as to how their development affected mine and it almost feels like i can disentangle or the the therapy itself is disentangling the sensations in a from my body physically in a way that allows me to walk differently Hmm. In my you in, in my own reality now because i can understand where my development went wrong but it also feels like then i'm repairing my development if you will like my identity my self-esteem my um my self-knowing my self-trust here's a really good example like when i first started drinking i was 17 and i did it um on january 1st of 2001 um at a party i had a glass of champagne and i got a little dizzy and it wasn't anything fun or spectacular but it was a way for me to feel like i was enjoyable and like i belonged and i could in my sessions i could feel all of the different little engines that helped keep my drinking in an uncomfortable pattern in an uncomfortable rhythm and one session at a time to really look at how I was craving for belonging or how I was afraid of aloneness or how I was desperate for connection. And to feel those pieces of my tattoo kind of disappear from my body left me feeling like now I can actually connect with or belong in the way. And the doubt and the fear and the the emotions itself had just kind of left. But I feel like if the aloneness and the desperate desperation to belong were living in my body it was almost like my drinking was reinforcing the trauma Mm because i would wake up and wonder what did i say and who did i say it to and now are they going to reject me and i'd feel so alone the morning after and it was almost like i was using my trauma to traumatize myself and then the i would say i'm never going to do that again and then the next weekend i would And then it was almost like my self-mistrust was another form of traumatizing myself. And it was like I was stuck in this whirlpool, you know, about to drown in this water because I couldn't keep waiting anymore. Do you see that as a common experience with trauma?
1: Yes, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And what I, you know, what you're describing is the patterns that often we form around the wounds are not ones that are. You know, we can, from an outside perspective, be like, well, that's. I think the word I remember learning something like it's called like maladaptive, So is a word that I really, really don't like, because actually the mm-hmm. patterns are really adaptive,
2: mm.
1: and uh, you know, so I have I, I get really stuck on mm. sort of the uh, maybe the negative viewpoint of like we can look at different things that we do and be like, well, yeah, that's probably not helping a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the ans- like asking the question, like, well, what purpose did it serve? Where was the wisdom in that? Why did that arise? And what was working about it? Like, what did it do?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Actually can be such a much more of a useful question to start to understand what it formed around. Mm-hmm. What's the wound? What's the hurt? because mm-hmm. um, like, yeah, I think many of us have, like, habits or patterns. We're like, well, gosh, I wish I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it there? Mm-hmm. And again, and again, and again, like I, what I see and what I understand is that every time that that exists, there's some aspect of wisdom to it. Mm-hmm. And that, that points right at maybe where does the healing need to happen?
2: Mm-hmm. And again,
1: like, I think that this is the, the orientation to this work and this is what you're describing, like really like sort of experiencing the longing or the shame,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you actually watch it dissolve, mm-hmm. that it weakens over time. hmm and it feels counterintuitive to us because I think we, we learn like, well, if I, you know, touch a stove, I'm not going to touch that stove again. And that's just actually a really smart way to, to, to learn things. Pain is there for a reason.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When we have emotional pain like this, we learn to not ever want to touch it again. Mm. And the process of, of resolution, like when the patterns that have formed around it, when the symptoms that have formed around it are worse than the pain itself, it puts us in a position where, like, maybe we've actually got to go feel that,
2: hmm.
1: you know. And when the timing is right, when the safety is there, you know, I think the what I hear you describing is just how much you've watched, like, going towards right where it hurts. Mm-hmm. Going right towards the worst of it actually allows the body to be free, allows freedom from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it never happened,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but in a way to, like like, walk tall in it. Like, right. oh i'm not scared of that anymore
2: mm-hmm.
1: like i'm not that that young person that that happened to anymore because mm-hmm. the body's not holding that pain kind of locked away
0: mm-hmm. the pain and i feel like for me it's the memory it's almost like when when i've been activated in my trauma it's almost like the memory feels like my reality and so it's the pain is there for sure and I think the constellation of the pain and the memory, that's what feels like the, the potent combo of trauma. Is like the pain is there, so it hurts, but also I remember what it felt like to be that little kid, and now I'm living in his reality, not mine. And so it's been life-changing. The metaphor that I get here is almost like the little kid who's afraid to go into the basement because it's dark down there post psychedelic assisted trauma therapy it's like you're not afraid to go in the basement and the basement doesn't change it's like the, the memory doesn't change but now you have the confidence and the power and the rational thinking to understand that nothing is down there there's no monster hiding under the bed and you own that courage and that confidence now and it's a different same circumstances maybe same memory but you feel different in it
1: Yeah, you know, I think that really speaks to the goal of of trauma therapy, which is to, right, to to be able to separate, like, narrative memory or our life experience from, like, overwhelming senses in the body. Mm -hmm. To be like, yes, yes, that happened. And I don't have to shut it down. I'm not, like, you know, locking the door to the basement, throwing Mm -hmm. a lot of, like, bars across it and, like, hoping that nobody ever touches it because Mm -hmm. if they touch it, right, then everything's going to fall apart mm-hmm. and i'm never going to touch it mm-hmm. and also not maybe repeatedly going into the dark basement hoping that it's going to be different mm-hmm. and i think that's often our two orientations to those sure. to those memories and those experiences mm-hmm. is i'm now yeah i'm now forever drawn to dive into dark basements or i'm never going to open that door
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that this work can start to be like oh it's it's a basement
0: mm-hmm With lights, I can turn them on. (laughs) Yeah,
2: and I
1: can turn on the lights. And, oh, I don't actually like the things that are down there, Mm -hmm. but it's
2: okay. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm.
0: One of the – maybe a good tangible experience for me was um, I'm a massive extrovert. Massive. And I feel like (laughs) being a therapist is like being an introvert. (laughs) so sometimes on a Friday night, I'm like, who wants to play anybody? Who wants to play? And so I would, in this craving to feel extroverted, but also, more importantly, with the craving to feel connected to, mm. which is something that I feel like is part of my tattoo. This horrible sensation as a feminine, closeted kid who knew he was totally different, just wondering why, you know, the cisgender het boys didn't want to play with me or, or as though I was broken because I wasn't interested in playing kickball or tough enough to play football and feeling just utterly damaged. And so in this portion of the tattoo where I'm craving to feel connected was this almost kind of this desperation to find it and then find it again and find it again. Mm. And thinking that if I go to a bar and sit down with friends and we laugh, and we're all sitting there drinking, then I can create a sense of connection. And if I get another drink, the connection doesn't have to end. And if I ask them to get another drink, the connection doesn't have to end, and so forth and so on. And I create this pattern thinking, "What is? why do I keep doing this thing I don't want to do? Because the drinking just felt unsafe or a little too chaotic. And realizing that I was trying to fabricate connection was once super helpful, but then to watch the pain and the memories and the desperation dissolve allows me now to sit with people in a room, in a park, not at a bar or still a bar and feel connected to. Yeah. And to know that I'm prioritizing now the connection rather than the thing I think will create the connection for me. Like, to go into that basement and turn on the lights and say, I can still be comfortable down here. This isn't a place I have to fear, has just been, it's liberating. It feels almost like I'm coming out of another closet. Hmm. Like, it's a totally different life. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> I think one of the, the the phrases that I often will say with books like, that we're not necessarily trying to orient to making the external change, right? But somebody's like, well, I want to stop going to the bar. Great. We've got lots of strategies on how we can talk about that. You know, what are alternative possibilities? Like all and sort of, Mm -hmm. it's on the layer of behavioral change, coping strategies, which are all absolutely relevant and valuable.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But I think the, the work that you are talking about that I think can be accessible and I think that the psychedelic substances and the ways that they impact the brain, and next some of the ways that they all like share commonality, can really allow a pretty deep access to like what's at the center of this. Hmm. What is that experience? Either that moment in time or those moments in times, but that that experience I had, that now drives sitting at the bar having these drinks, Mm -hmm. doing this again, even though it's not like, I see how it's not working. Mm -hmm. Um, And the phrase that I use with clients is often like the goal here is not to necessarily change the outward behavior, but to give you more choice. Mm -hmm. Right. That from a place with like, you know, and I think we imagine ourselves as very rational. We are, you know, rational, rational humans. I make choices about my life.
2: Mm -hmm. We
1: start to like, look a little bit closer. Most of us do lots of things that are habitual, like I, you know, I just do what I do, and sometimes the choices that we make, you know, I think this is kind of a, a lot of a lot of psychotherapy would say like, well, we might not be as making as many choices as we think,
2: mm-hmm. like,
1: you know, because if my choices are like, oh, I can go right, and things look like, oh, that looks free, or I can go left, and oh, God, there's an ogre, mm-hmm. I'm gonna choose right, right, and and I think trauma really becomes it takes away choice in a lot of ways, which is like, well, I'm going to do these things because I need to be able to feel free. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do whatever I can to feel safer than I do right now. Right. And so it narrows our range of choices sometimes into some really, some things that aren't helpful, that are harmful to us. Mm
2: -hmm. But again,
1: like they're probably offering like connection, Mm -hmm. safety, Mm -hmm. a sense of self that is better than, than, you know, better than the alternative. Um, when we go towards the ogre you know like having somebody hold you know holding somebody's hand and walking into the basement
2: Mm -hmm.
1: opens up the experience of oh choice that i didn't know i had Mm -hmm. like i can let in like i can let in connection that i wasn't going to let in before right or i can oh i can find it somewhere where i didn't think i could
0: find it before Mm -hmm. yeah and then that basement is less of a scary place and it's more of your refuge yeah after a while One of the more profound, and it's up to consciousness because it was in one of my most recent sessions with you. But it was um, this kid who felt like he didn't belong, like he wasn't worthy of connection. And so the one place where he could go was to the dance floor. Because if he could use his body well enough to lure in someone else, it meant that he could be connected to at least in those few moments on the dance floor. But to feel actually comfortable on the dance floor, I'm, I realized this in one of my medicated sessions, I needed to be so intoxicated that I cared nothing about or I could think about nothing more than just what it felt like to have him hold me on the dance floor. Yeah, I needed to be intoxicated enough so I didn't think about the consequences or the pain I would feel later or the embarrassment or the shame that came with what I was doing. And so it was just like I was... I needed the intoxication to feel what I was most desperate for almost like it had to trick me into getting the thing because the connection because I couldn't be vulnerable enough where I assumed I wasn't safe enough where I wasn't valuable enough to let it to let myself get it in another option and so to, to realize what that, how that pattern was functioning for me in that adaptive way and then to see the trauma therapy kind of reveal for me what I was actually doing and what I was craving for now gives me way more choice yeah. to access those feelings and to feel safe receiving them in broad daylight rather than fabricating them in the secret corners of my life.
2: Yeah yeah
1: and you know, i think it, it maybe as i listen to that story it maybe it answers or it begs the question of like right why is it useful to go revisit you know that little boy who felt so bad mm-hmm. you know because i think oftentimes when I, and i have this conversation with folks quite a bit and i think there's, a, there's validity to saying well well that was the past mm-hmm. it's the past and i'm moving forward and with anybody I'm like well if that's working go for it like do that because I you know don't take the stance to tell anybody they have to go back to times in the past that were bad
2: mm-hmm.
1: now, the bind that's sometimes there is that well if things aren't working if mm-hmm. moving forward isn't working if you are not free
2: mm-hmm.
0: the
1: past isn't the past
0: right you know um, the past is the present you're living in
1: yeah um uh, it, I wish I had off the top of my head. There's a beautiful William Faulkner quote from the sound and the fury about the past not being the past, but I I've lost it now. <laughs> in my head. Um, right, But the, yeah, the, the past isn't the past. If it's still here, if our body's still holding it. Mm-hmm. And I think, right. And, and what I see again and again and again, the framework that I, that I really I trust and I hold an experiential place is that right, we're not basically bad. Mm-hmm. We learn that we're bad. We may be taught that we're awful, we, you know, all the different ways that society and our parents and our caregivers maybe are confused and wounded themselves, like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: may teach us a lot about how we are weak, bad, awful, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Sure. Like, underneath that, like, just the, like the experience of being alive, the experience of being conscious in the, in our bodies, in this world, has the... Like a, the just really the innate capacity of her, like oh, we're like bright and good and warm, mm-hmm. and connection is possible. Mm-hmm. And depending on the degree that that's been wounded, like that may or may not be accessible in all sorts of circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know I, have, I you know can walk the streets of Denver and see and readily recognize that there are many folks who are not having that experience of being like safe and good in their bodies mm-hmm. and know that that's actually a true experience. Mm-hmm. You know, the world, the world is what it is and it doesn't teach us this necessarily. Um, but what I find is that in a safe place, in a safe way to go back there, mm-hmm. to feel those parts of ourselves, to feel that, you know, that, that nine year old boy who felt the way he felt mm-hmm. actually somehow like allows us to come into contact with the goodness that's, that, that was there then, that is there now. And I think I hear that in, in what you say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, just to add a little more context, I think um, books like Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine or The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, those books are, and the research that they're doing really kind of highlights that our body literally is holding onto the trauma yes. memory itself. It, that memory is literally living in our body. I could not agree more. Yeah. And on
1: some levels, I think it can be actually seen very easily. I think sometimes mm-hmm. you can see the contortions that a, bo- a person's body holds that are not, it's not just physical injury, mm-hmm. but the way our shoulders might slump, the ways that our muscles might hold tightness. Mm-hmm. And I think as, as someone who's been in this field and has been practicing it, I start to I, I see that in people's bodies. Mm-hmm when I meet with clients, it mostly operates underneath our awareness because it's like, well, the body I've been in, I've been in it for this many years and it's just the same body. And sure, I have these aches and these pains or I have these digestive issues. Um, But What I, I, you know, and I I think this is, you're going to say this has been your experience, my own experience and what I have seen is we start to wake up to how the body holds it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be emotional content that we just like you know i haven't cried in years and now i'm suddenly i'm paying attention to this spot in my belly and i'm Mm -hmm. tearing up like Mm -hmm. there's a link right and sometimes it's really is on the level of muscle contraction Mm -hmm. tension that we don't even recognize we're holding until it starts to loosen or release and it's like Mm -hmm. holy you know holy moly Mm -hmm. um and i you know i I think in in the psychedelics start to really sort of ask these questions or, or put forth like other layers of like energetic patterns in the body that mm-hmm. can't be clearly pinned to, um, you know, musculoskeletal system. Mm-hmm. Um, but it start to highlight in these different ways, the connection between emotion, sensation, thought, um, you know, you know, is that, you know, is that a substance falsely creating an experience? Mm-hmm. Uh, and my, 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 sense again and again and again is is null, no. mm-hmm. and that in trusting that trusting our bodies in in space and and even under the influence can actually allow access to things that we just don't get to mm-hmm. um.
0: i agree there was one session where it felt like shame was just in my shoulders and like sorrow was in my chest and every time like my shoulders would constrict it was like they were pushing out more shame and it was just like radiating through my back or if I like constricted my chest muscles, it was like literally like I was squeezing out sorrow and just feeling this like immense emotion um, that was not very fun to live through, <laughs> <laughs> but also incredibly liberating. Yeah. I mean, it's like literally shaking out the trauma. Um, and that trust in the body is is incredible.
1: I think that's one of like the maybe, I would say, you know, not usually what folks come in for, but I think one of the most powerful benefits from the work is creating new relationship with our bodies mm-hmm. is like a development of trust often, a place that we may not even realize how much we don't trust our own bodies
2: mm-hmm.
1: how much we you know we walk around sort of like, like the top-down mechanisms of of controlling the body mm-hmm. you know i will make my body do things i will restrict my body in these ways i will use my body to do this or that get from here to there mm-hmm. but like listen to it
2: mm-hmm.
1: like really let feeling be something that will guide my life or guide my experiences no <laughs> right you know again and again I, that that's I think how folks will start therapy and I think our, our society doesn't teach us, you know, to listen to the body. I think mm-hmm. we live in a fairly masculine patriarchal world mm-hmm. and that's considered the realm of the feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can we right. go down a rabbit hole about toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and maybe the, the, the <laughs> disconnection from body For sure. in that, but, mm-hmm. but it, to start to form a relationship that is about reciprocation mm-hmm. and, and listening and
2: trusting—it's
1: mm-hmm. um, actually just a, like a nicer place to live.
0: For I sure. Think oh God! Most of it's the time, amazing. it is amazing. <laughs> I kind of want to just a quick—I um, want to go back just a little bit because I think the childhood work, like visiting that childhood or that little boy in me, one of the in one session, it blew my mind because I love in my clinical orientation to talk about emotional cravings that my my craving to belong is being negotiated in every moment of every day. Who's texting me? Who's not? Who am I connected to? Do I feel like I belong with my partner or not? And it was interesting to go back to see this little innocent kid holding the sense of belonging and then watching the rejection in childhood shape that belonging and then yeah. the self-doubt in adolescence and then more bullying in high school, shaping or like almost kind of like suffocating that belonging. And then from that suffocated place, what I chose to do to help medicate it or to help fabricate a sense of belonging. And to go back and say, oh crap, this pattern in my life that I absolutely hate started all the way back here. And that awareness is just so liberating. I don't have another word, Mm. but it allows you to really not only understand the pattern you don't want to work through the emotions that are so painful, but then give you back the innocence of your own desire has just been huge, like massive. And so I think going back and looking at some of that childhood stuff is not only Uh, I think as therapists, we get kind of blamed for always wanting focusing on childhood, (laughs) (laughs) but it works. It works. I promise. It's important. Yeah.
1: Right. The truth is, we all came from somewhere, Mm -hmm. and whatever where, whatever age we are, wherever we are in life, like we have been formed by those experiences. Mm -hmm. And and again, I think yeah, right. Like the uh, therapy can be sort of, I think. The whole behavioral behaviorism movement came out of like, let's stop blaming the parents. Sure. And, you know, no parent is perfect.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think if you start to really look at it, there's probably lineages mm-hmm. oh, of sure. love and wounds, mm-hmm. you know, all through human history. But our primary formative environment where it all starts is a, is with our primary caregivers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, my goal is never to blame parents because parents are, that, that's the hard job. For sure. And if you are a young parent or a wounded parent, like, there's no way that you're not going to bring that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just true,
0: you know. For sure.
1: This is the world as it is. But again and again and again, you know, the entirety of the ACEs study that happened, Kaiser Permanente study in California, I think, in the, I think it was the early 90s, it really spoke to adverse childhood experiences as predictors across the board for life distress. Mm-hmm. And that was a medical study. Mm-hmm. Right, like, really speaks to like it it matters, Mm -hmm.
2: and somehow,
1: and maybe you know, was a lot of therapists who were bad parents in the early 1900s who said like, (laughs) no, 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 let's just not look there, (laughs) like whatever it is that we've avoided that, or like that somehow this field for so many decades like didn't want to look under the like the clear rock Mm -hmm. sitting there. That's like, oh no, it matters. Mm -hmm.
0: Development matters. Totally, especially because we're a sponge. You know, like in childhood, we didn't have perfect parents, but we also didn't have skills. We didn't have rational thinking. Like the child didn't have mechanisms to navigate those painful experiences. And so I think it's important to to realize that the limbic, I, this is my metaphor, I think the limbic system is like an emotional sponge that when triggered, it's going to squeeze out all the memory we're holding on to. And then it doesn't go away. It goes right back in the sponge so that it can protect us, quote unquote, next time. Yeah. You know, One of the most healing components to my work with you, and I fully believe this, is something that doesn't happen in talk therapy very or at all, if, if it does, but is touch. Can you describe the role of touch in this work? Because it's profound.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I notice my immediately there's uh, I have this this hesitation that comes up because I think, right, even not many years ago, like going through graduate school, like the topic of touch in psychotherapy is one that is, to some extent, taboo. Which is like that it opens too many doors. It is a place that is the slippery slope of of breaking boundaries in the therapeutic relationship. Like I was mm-hmm. taught a lot, a lot to fear it. Mm-hmm. I think many, many therapists who are trained are, are taught a lot to fear it and mm-hmm. for and for some good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the role of it, especially if we're talking about a body-based perspective and a developmental perspective to how we have come to be in our lives, you know, connection with other humans and on a body level, actual contact is fundamental and foundational to like how we feel safe in our bodies. What did we learn about touch when we were young? Like what happened? Like, was I hit? Was touch pulled away from me? Hmm. You know, was I touched in ways that didn't feel good and all of that, like those are really big. Like those are embodied experiences. Um, The physical sense of connection. And so, you know, And again, I'm going to do just a little bit more contextualizing, which is like the first statement that I make with any client ever, if we are going to do body-based work or trauma processing is touch does not have to be a part of this therapy, and I am never going to touch you without your consent. Mm -hmm. And right, and it's it's on every Colorado disclosure forum, which is that sexual Mm -hmm. intimacy is never going to be a part Mm -hmm. of this relationship. Mm -hmm. And those things might even seem like they don't need to be said, but those things do happen therapists mm-hmm. do break the, they break those boundaries and mm-hmm. oftentimes it, uh, the use of touch in therapy can be very activating mm-hmm. like a simple like holding of a hand
2: mm-hmm. can bring
1: so much up for someone mm-hmm. and i think what i see and why i have chosen to integrate those kinds of interventions in this work is the profound way that it impacts our nervous system mm-hmm that the 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 holding of a hand is one of like the probably the simplest ways that touch might be used in in us in a somatic reprocessing session is the sense of like i'm not alone in this Mm -hmm. that like on a body level we actually feel it it's Mm -hmm. not me believing it because there's a person in the room and i'm not believing it because they've said they're there Mm -hmm. i feel them Mm -hmm. and if i actually trust that person Mm -hmm. That is so profoundly powerful. And I think there is work that cannot be accessed without the true body knowledge that there is somebody else with us. Mm-hmm. And the way that that shifts what is accessible, what can move from something that is overwhelming and has to stay in a dissociative, cut off realm of my own experience to the possibility of bringing it into integration into myself, into like my known conscious experience. Mm-hmm is in connection with another person.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, so that's a, a bit of, you know, and it maybe won't go into like, you know, like there are different, you know, different places where one could m- put contact on the body, mm-hmm. shoulder, back or chest. And, and that's all one subset of essentially resourcing touch that can be used. Um, and the hesitation that comes up is I think it, it, I think, can also be hurtful and harmful
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you know like holding a client's hand and i, and I think this is one of these pieces that is like to, to is really about being as closely attuned as possible
2: mm-hmm.
1: is that people don't always tell you that they don't want to be touched
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's something that in just in talking about like like that piece that like you know i think i i have trained to pay attention close enough but if I have any sense that like somebody has said, yes, like, oh, yes, I would like you to hold my hand or please hold my hand. Mm-hmm. And then I start to pick up that they might not want my hand to be there anymore, but they don't know how to say it. Mm-hmm. Like the other side of repair mm-hmm. <laughs> is knowing when to allow somebody their separate existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's one of the, it's a really interesting part of this work and one that I love a lot and feels well, to, to me, one of the most challenging And how to do that in a way that is useful for somebody. Um, And not run the risk, yeah, of of the the many sort of pitfalls that can come up just because of how potent physical contact really is. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's been certain times in my processing where um, I remember one time it felt like I was slipping down into... um, This might sound a little dramatic, but this is what happens (laughs) in the therapy. (laughs) It felt like I was slipping down into the death of the little kid who wanted to be authentic. And it was such a scary black hole. I remember saying, I just want you to hold my wrist. And for some reason, that felt like the best tether that I could like know I was still in the room with you, but then dive into that alone pit. Yes. And that kind of touch is just incredible. Because it kind of kept me connected to the room, but also let me process. And then there have been other times when I was sitting in some serious shame. And you said something like, uh, I don't want you to sit in this alone. Mm. And you, you asked if you could touch my knees or my hands or something. And I said yes. And the moment you did it, it felt like I had a big brother who was saying, I feel your shame I know it's there and I can sit with you in it. And it was such a unifying experience that allowed me to say, I can let go of this. Like the touch said, I am safe enough to let go of this. I don't need it anymore. Um, And I think that for someone who's processing some of those developmental traumas, to say, I feel alone or I feel disposable or I feel... Um, disgusting to know that someone is physically in the process with you to show you what you should have been shown it's it's amazing yeah it's amazing you know
1: it makes me you know I think smile and feel a little shy embarrassed Mm -hmm. to to hear you (laughs) speak of like right out like a powerful experience like that and you know it's interesting I don't know that I would think that it was ethical to go towards some of the developmental places, the young places that can show up in this work, mm-hmm. without the possibility of being in physical contact. I okay, you know work with folks where like we can go very young, can go to infant and toddler and places where somebody was hurt badly or neglected, abandoned, mm-hmm. and the thought of further abandoning, mm-hmm. like in that place actually feels really like potentially harmful. And so there's a lot of contracting, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of creating safety around what does it mean if somebody is going to go to a place that is so alone,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like so filled with shame or fear. And you know, touch is one way, physical contact is one way that somebody on a body level just can know that they're not alone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the thing often that probably needed to have happened at the time mm-hmm. you know and didn't that that the big hug or the rubbing of a back or the holding of a hand or mm-hmm. just whatever it was that maybe a parent or caregiver couldn't give or didn't give or or in some cases even restricted mm-hmm. um, you know those are yeah those are big hurts
0: mm-hmm. so, absolutely well thanks for your time
1: yeah, yeah of course
0: Given the depth to which trauma and substance abuse patterns took hold in my body, I scoured the world looking for remedies to my anxiety, fears, and unwanted patterns. Traditional talk therapy helped immensely. EMDR was super helpful. Somatic experiencing changed my life. And after all my therapeutic successes, there remained a layer of pain I could not yet touch. That's when I found Trevor and his amazing work. Had you told me as a beginning therapist that I would integrate psychedelics into my practice, I would have probably shunned. But to be honest, I totally and completely believe in psychedelic assisted trauma therapy after experiencing the changes it created for myself. Don't get me wrong, psychedelic assisted trauma therapy is not easy. I've never heard my body groan with immense sorrow and I've never felt my body let go of so much pain as I have in my sessions with Trevor. But to feel the relief and pattern shifting, or seeing my body feel alive once again, has given me so much hope for my future and my relationships, especially the one I have with Joe. When I first heard of Peter Levine in his book, Waking the Tiger, and Bessel van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, I was instantly fascinated We do hold trauma in our bodies. Research shows us that we house trauma in our shoulder muscles and our quads. We literally hold memory in our body in addition to our brains. And to watch the body purge itself of all of that painful content it holds is not only relieving, it feels in many ways like a literal miracle. Like I said, I thought EMDR would do the trick, and to be honest, I noticed a ton of relief in the way I navigated old triggers because of EMDR. But let me tell you, psychedelic-assisted trauma therapy is like EMDR times a thousand. I often reflect on the work we're doing at Am Clinic. My team of clinicians and I are continuously talking about the quality of care we provide because we truly want what is best for the LGBTQ community. We literally want you to feel ready and confident to create the love lives and relationships you crave. And this is why I wanted to bring psychedelic assisted trauma therapy to the clinic. I believe that we are all humans trying to make the best of this life while we're here. And given the realities of life in the closet, the loneliness we encounter, and the ways we experience minority strain as people in a heteronormative world, I know that our bodies carry pain, insecurity, and a deep hunger to belong, in addition to many other things. Psychedelic assisted trauma therapy isn't for everybody, I will say. But I am thankful that there are people like Trevor in the world who possess the brilliance and the courage to walk people like me through trauma. I will be forever grateful to Trevor and his work. And to you, those of us who belong to the Me Too movement, those of us who lived in the closet silently suffering, and those of you who know what painful abuse or dramatic rejection feels like, there is hope, I promise. Until next time, be gentle with yourself. Mwah. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic. A counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. IM Clinic. Create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at IM Clinic. That's IAM Clinic.